Great to have you back in the Trojan Talk podcast. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com. And this is the week that many of us have been waiting for. The one that was circled from the start of the season. One of the few games on the schedule that seemed like the ones that would decide the potential for this USC team. We're talking about the number seven Trojans going on the road to number 20, Utah. I will, of course, be at the game providing full coverage and pregame notes and postgame reaction and all the good stuff. So looking forward to getting out to Salt Lake City, one of my favorite trips on the Pac-12 schedule. And, wow, this will be the last one. This will be the last Salt Lake City trip in terms of it being a conference game. Very excited for this game. Very excited to chop it up with Max Brown for our weekly segment. Not even segment. It's, it's the show. Max is the show. I'm in there, too. He's the show. The former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, four years running. Max is on to break down the win over Washington State to talk a lot about the defense, to give his top Lincoln Riley play call of the week, which he breaks down in great detail and in-depth football IQ. We hit all the storylines of the week, and we get into the matchup with the Utes. And I'll just tease it right now. Max and I had differing predictions for this game. Differing predictions. That means one of us is picking Utah to prevail. Which one is it? You'll have to listen. I'll have to wait and see at the end of the show. Or I guess you're able to fast forward, do the modern technology. But either way. The only note to come from practice this week of significance is that Shane Lee, linebacker Shane Lee, is looking more likely to play. Lincoln Riley actually said that um, they really thought he was going to play last week and were surprised that it wasn't able to progress to that point. But he should most likely be able to play this week. We will, of course, update you pregame from Rice Eccles Stadium on Saturday. Other than that, can't think of anything else I need to waste your time with before bringing on the star of the show, Max Brown. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Here we go. All right, as we do every week on the Trojan Talk podcast, I am joined by Max Brown, our longstanding Trojansports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback. Max, how are you? Doing well. 6-0, baby. Keep this thing going. After practice Tuesday, Lincoln Riley was asked what he thinks they have to do to win the final six games. And his response was, only six? Hey, he said that to us last night. We're filming this on Tuesday. We're recording this on Tuesday. He said uh, he wishes he had more opportunities, which I feel like has been the sentiment the past week of how much fun everyone is having, which I feel like might speak to why Lincoln's here in the first place uh, in terms of what SC has to offer and overall quality of life. But anyways, yes, only, only uh, a handful of opportunities left. I have a feeling that the Oklahoma fans are going to find that comment somehow because they find everything and they're going to pounce on you for that. But, but yes. Uh, I, it's all good. I think it's the truth. <laughs> I do too. I do too. But I, I was talking on the message board uh, after practice on Tuesday about that comment from Lincoln as it got a lot of attention. And, and he quickly, he quickly re- realized that that was going to make the rounds. He goes, just, you know, calm down everybody. I'm just, just joking around. But his outward confidence I think has just kind of rubbed off on this team from the start. If you recall going back to even when he first arrived, 
he had every chance. We, we as interviewers, as, as reporters, gave him every opportunity to kind of couch some things this first season of, yeah, it's going to take time to get this together. Oh, we have so many new pieces. It could take a while to get it together. And he just refused every time and, and in fact, was the one driving the expectations. He was always the one saying there's no excuses. We expect to compete for championships every year. This year's no different. And comments like he made Tuesday, like his his palpable confidence, I think, has to wear off on the team a little bit. Have you noticed that with coaches you played for, that, that some of their personality just kind of filters into the team's identity? Definitely, yeah. Like when we had the transition from uh, Kiffin to Orgeron and whatnot, and at that point Kiffin was a different uh, different coach and feels like personality than he is now. But, you know, when the confidence that Coach O had for that two-month stretch, it certainly it wears off on you. I mean, I asked Nick Figueroa that last night, like, Put yourself in Nick Figueroa and Andrew Voorhees and Brett Nevon's shoes. Like, they've seen a lot of ball, and they've seen a lot of gloom and doom days at USC. Like, for them, it must just be so different coming into the office every single day and so different showing up to practice and expecting to win and having fun doing it. And it's not this just cloud that's over the program. But, um, no, I, I definitely think you, uh, you feel that, and it's a byproduct of uh, – I think I've said this before on the podcast, but I know I've said it on other uh, other mediums as well, is when you have a head coach that's not selling you something, it's just, this is what it is. This, this is who he is. There's a confidence there, and you're not feeling like he's having to advocate for a certain, you know, we're going to be better at tackling, or we're going to be more physical in practice, or this is going to happen, or that's going to happen. It's just, no, like, this is what we are. I think that wears off to, to every facet of, uh, of building the program, and you certainly feel that in the program right now. To your point about the players who who went through the the lows and are now experiencing this high, I've tried to get at that all season with them, and and they're very good about not uh, not wanting to, to delve into the past too much or or draw the comparisons. But when I did a feature story on Brett Nealon, I talked to his dad at length, and his dad was very candid about just the toll last season took on him, and and how like Brett was never going to transfer anywhere; he was never going to play anywhere else. But after that finale at Cal like he really had to question if he wanted to even be a part of this anymore if he wanted to come back and I, I think he very quickly got to that decision that he did especially after he thought more about Lincoln Riley and what it could mean but that Cal game when a bunch of guys just chose not to go and others were hurt and anyways they had a very small roster like that really rubbed a lot of guys wrong and that, that was the absolute nadir of the whole thing and for it to turn so quickly again, we say it every week, so I'm not going to believe her, but it, it is kind of crazy. One more thing on Lincoln's tone setting and everything, and we're going to start this week with the defense instead of the offense, as we normally do. But after the game, I asked, in fact, I just kind of put it in the question. I said, you know, I think we all kind of expected that it would be a work in progress to get this defense together. And he kind of came back at me and goes, well, I, I didn't think it was going to be a work in progress. I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it as a process. And it's just that, like, no, there's no excuses. I, I don't care how bad this defense was. This is this year. We expect to play this way. And I thought his best comment was, we don't want people to watch us and see a different style from the offense, from the defense, and the special teams. We, we want to see one identity across the board. And I think he's achieved that. Ryan, have you seen, has that been a steady messaging from Riley and the defensive staff literally the past nine months of, like, expecting the defense to be great? Or has that shifted 
over the past month when the defense has, you know, shown that they have that ability. And it's one thing to back it when no one's seen it, but now it's easier. We talked about it last night, how, like, the, the old mantra of the defense has shifted. Has the wording of how the coaches talk about the defense shifted over the, the past nine months? It's a great question. I, I don't think so, especially not with, with Riley. He, on multiple occasions, going back to the spring, the start of fall camp, he would be asked about the defense, always in this kind of framework of, well, obviously the big question is the defense. And he would always make it clear that we don't want to be a an offense-led team. We want to be a team. And he would say, you have to have a championship-caliber defense to win championships, and we believe we have the, the, the pieces in place to do it this year. And whenever he said it, it, it always seemed to me like an overreach, like, okay, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But but now I look back on it, and I think about really the way he's approached everything, and I don't really think that he ever feels he has to oversell things. I, I mean, I, I don't think he personally cares to convince anybody about anything. So if he didn't think that, I don't think he would have said that. And and as I look back on it now, that's how I see it. I, th- I think that he truly, in that moment, felt – there's every reason why this could be a very good defense. We have to get there, but it can happen. And everything he said confidently, I think, is is what he feels and believes and not what he's trying to sell or project because I just don't think, that he, to your point, that he needs to be a salesman, even even to the fan base. I think that's spot on. That belief has guys playing more confident, and I think that's well, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that when you're building the program, you, we might not see. Now we're seeing all that work pay off, so – Credit, credit to staff. And, and then with Alex Grinch, his messaging hasn't changed at all, but it's been a little different than Riley's. He's just constantly, constantly uh, blunt and frank and, and candidly critical about, about the unit. And you would have thought, if, if you didn't watch the game Saturday and you just flipped on Alex Grinch's postgame interview that we did in the locker room or outside the locker room, wherever it was, you would have thought that they had hung on for a 50-48 win or something. Uh, instead of you know shutting out Washington State in the second half and holding the 14 points and um, one of their lowest yardage totals, he's just always his tact is he has no tolerance for anything not going as well as he knows it could go. And so when when the team starts out slow in the first half and then makes the adjustment after halftime, he's not celebrating the adjustment. He's going, why couldn't we play like that in the first half? As he'll always say. It's not that they make adjustments, it's that they just tighten up and and do what they're supposed to do, whereas they, they come out maybe and don't do that from the beginning. He even said, he goes, maybe our, our guys just have to see it first to, to believe what we're telling them, and that's not the mark of a good defense. We have to get past that. So he's always been pushing for more and more and more and more, and surely that's you know a factor for why they've been so so advanced and so far, so far ahead of external expectations whatever the internal expectations were they are so far ahead of external expectations and i wrote a column on that monday night but it just numbers are just stark and stunning I just got off uh, utah radio and they said what's the biggest surprise for the sc team or i guess like how does you know the the sc right now compared to where you thought they were going to be in august and i just said the groundbreaking difference is the defense. In, 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 in August, we thought we were going to have to win every single – even in September, I thought we were going to have to win every single game, the, the defense hanging on, and the offense outscoring people. Now I have confidence that our defense can win us a game, which is remarkable. I would have never said that back in August. I would argue that the defense has won them – definitely won and maybe two games. Obviously the Oregon State game, the 17-14 win – 
that's all the defense to me. And then this past week, 30-14 over Washington State, that game that game could have easily taken on a different trajectory course if the defense didn't buckle down and really shut down things when the offense was kind of lagging. I mean, it wasn't until the third series of the third quarter that USC got any separation, really, in that game. And th- that required the defense buying them a lot of time to get things going offensively in the meantime and, and not being in a deficit at that point. So this defense can win them games, and I think it has. I want to get into some numbers here. So I'm going to read through these numbers, and I'm curious what you find to be most surprising, most impressive, etc. And just to, to kind of preface it, last year USC's defense, as I've mentioned many times, finished with the worst scoring defense and worst total defense numbers in program history. So that was the baseline for where we're coming into this year. Scoring defense, they ranked 27th in the country. I think it's tops in the Pac-12 at 18.67 points per game allowed. That is 13 points better than last year when they ranked 103rd. Total defense, they're giving up 351.5 yards per game, which is 47th. That is 57.5 yards better per game than last year. Turnovers forced, they're tied for second in the country with 15. Sacks, they are first in the country with 24. Already have more than they had last year, and they had 21. And then my favorite stat, going back to those second-half adjustments or tightening up, whatever you want to call it, they've only allowed 36 second-half points in six games. That includes two scoreless second-halves, and only one team, Stanford, has scored more more than one touchdown after halftime against them. So that's my pick for for most impressive stat. But of all I just gave you, what stands out to you? The stat stands out to me. I I did not – think that was going to be a strength of this defense and as I said out loud I'm like all right yeah there's one aspect of like Alex Grinch heating things up but if you had said to me two months ago hey USC is going to be a good sack team I would have said oh Romello Height and Corey Foreman must be elite right they must have taken the next step but as we've seen Height's been out and Corey Foreman you know he gets gets reps but he's not been an impact player yet we're still getting that rush which that's just super impressive. That's something we did not see, you know, a, a year ago. And I think that's just when you're able to heat things up on the quarterback, that's where, like, the, where the, the trickle-down effect of it happens. But all those guys, a lot of new faces, some uh, some old ones, Nick Figueroa, I think obviously Tui Tupelotu taking that next step and now being a legitimate NFL dude. That's obviously gone a long ways. But that sack number, Ryan, that's what, that's what, that's what sticks out to me. Oh, it's a great answer, and uh, Tuli Tuipilotu leads college football in sacks seven and tackles for loss 12. So he is the individual leader in the country. The team is leading in that category, and, yeah, nobody would have projected that beforehand. And uh, for our listeners, go on Trojansports.com and check out the in-depth feature story I posted Monday on Tuli. Great perspective from his high school coach, USC's coaches and teammates, a good read there for you to learn more about USC's star defensive lineman. As Riley said, it hasn't just been Thule. They've they've gotten it across the board. We've talked about Solomon Bird in the past. Nick Figueroa had two more sacks on Saturday. Tyrone Teleni has become an, uh, a factor, which I just didn't expect. It's a deeper defense than we thought. And Riley also made the point that the coverage has mostly been very good, which has also led to some 
some coverage sacks where the quarterback has nowhere to go with it and the defense has more time to, to get home there. So all told, I'm a believer. I'm a believer in this defense now. I am too. I am too. I think uh, the reality check will definitely be as we get into the back half of, of football. I think that, you know, that's something we said back in August of, all right, it's one thing to hold up in the first half of the season, but your depth will be tested as we start getting closer to November. And our, your depth will be tested just this matchup this week against uh, against Utah. But, yeah, those interior guys, you mentioned it, Tulane getting in there, being a factor. Stanley T getting reps. Uh, Dijon Benton as well played a role in there. That, that to me, still remains. In terms of, hey, if SC's going to win a Pac-12 title, um, I don't have as many concerns right now as uh, with, with the edge guys. But still, interior defensive line, they're playing very, very well. But that, to me, still remains, uh, you know, the, the, the X factor for this defense. Yep. Um, and we didn't even mention, and it needs to be stated, that they were playing without two of their best defensive players, with, with Shane Lee missing the game. We'll see where he's at as this week progresses. And then Kalen Bulk, of course, getting ejected for targeting in the first half there. And USC allows only 14 points. Well, seven of those came directly after Bullock was ejected, and Anthony Beavers had to come in, and he really has not played many meaningful snaps in his career as a, as a redshirt freshman, and Washington State went right at him on the next play and, and had a 45-yard completion down to the, the four- or five-yard line. So if Bullock's in there, that probably doesn't happen, and maybe it's an even more impressive performance. But to do that without those two guys is another great point. One last stat. I forgot to mention this is this is kind of a fun a fun stat and kind of you know you can you can always play with numbers and and um, kind of you know maneuver them to to make them make certain points but like we said we thought this would be an offense driven team with the defense hopefully being better well USC's offense is ranked 15th nationally in scoring I said the defense is 27th but that number for the offense includes the three pick sixes in the opener. So if you take out those 21 points from the offense, they would be ranked 29th nationally in scoring and the defense 27th. So it, if you look at it that way, it's been a pretty balanced team so far. Those three pick sixes coming, uh, coming up big. No, definitely balanced team. And I think it's cool that every single week, you know, it feels like they're winning in a different way. This past week, it was the defensive line stepping up. You mentioned it. Shane Lee out. Kalen Bullock gets hurt. Other weeks, it's or this past week, you know, more Travis die. Other weeks, it's going to be Caleb, or last week, Caleb Williams' legs. I'm sure we'll have many games ahead where it's Caleb Williams' arm. That's the sign of a great team and building a great culture when you don't have to win in just one way. And different guys can be the start of the week, so to speak, and, uh, and show out. Last topic on the defense, I want to take it back to Alex Grinch. And I, certainly everyone has seen that his name has been tossed around for every open head coaching job. And it should be mentioned that as we went through this last year, like when the head coaching job comes open and the national college football writers throw out a list of candidates for this job, and this is not to besmirch anybody, but a lot of that is comes down to relationships with agents and agents saying, hey, uh, put my guy's name on out there for this job and you know, I'll, I'll help you later with a, with something, with a story. So the fact that Grinch's name has been attached to every open job, I think I would just assume is in part because of his agents uh, working behind the scenes and saying, get, get his name out there. 
But I also do fully believe that he will be a head coach at some point. He's just a very polished, put-together guy who has a real a real identity for what he wants to do, a real clarity in how he wants to do things, which I think is essential to any head coach, is just being, being organized and having a true vision. And I see that from him. The fact that he's been a coordinator now at four different places, including his then as a co-coordinator at Ohio State, is about all the experience you would ever need before being a head coach. So it's, to me it's a question of when he leaves, not if. What do you think about his prospects as a head coach? And Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I see it a couple of ways. I mean, I read those same articles that, hey, the, the Colorado vacancy and the ASU vacancy are obviously the ones that are mentioned. And I'm sure as, as more jobs open up in, in the months to come, he'll be uh, he'll be right there. It's, it's funny, though, because and Ron, we kind of talked about this last week, but him coming over from Oklahoma, you saw the track record of him having great first years at programs, but it wasn't necessarily like raving reviews across the board about what he was doing. And we've talked about the our favorite Oklahoma fans and whatnot, but it's always just intriguing when uh, when that's just the, 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 the dynamic, so to speak. But so much of this decision just goes back on the back of, of how these guys are wired. Like it just it, it is Grinch the type of guy that – wants to see something through at USC, knowing that, hey, he'll have his head coaching point at some point down the road. Is he a guy that, you know, wants to go back and, and tap into more like the the Wazoo Northwest, Northwest scenes? Is he good with Arizona? Does he like Colorado? Like, I don't know. We'll see. And then maybe he's a guy that wants to let the, uh, the landscape of college football kind of settle before, before making that big jump. I don't know, but what I do know is I, I, I feel like these coaches love the quality of life and what they have at SC now, so I don't think there'll be any rush to get Grinch. I think the number would have to be phenomenal to, to, to pull him to, to Boulder or, or Tempe. Exactly. I, I see him as a very pragmatic person who's going to be really really think it through and, and really weigh out options and not jump at the first opportunities. I think he knows that he will get that chance. He's, still, he's a young guy. I think he waits until it's just the most conducive, can't say no to this job opportunity, and doesn't try and talk himself in to a Colorado or a, a job like that. Now, that's not to say that, that that can't say no job doesn't come around this offseason. It could, but I don't think he'll take anything that's not you know clearly appealing. And I think your point about waiting to see how the college football landscape settles down is a good point, too. I mean, certainly, if, if you're good somewhere, then you can bounce to the next place. But you'd like to get somewhere where you think you can be for a while, and you, you'd want that to be, you know, part of the power structure of college football as it as it continues to to shift and, and move. Okay, go to the offense, and we're going to start with our favorite segment, Max Brown's Lincoln Riley play call of the week. Your favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the week. You called me out on Twitter, I guess tagged me on Twitter to do the Mario Williams touchdown, and I said, all right, sweet, say uh, say less. That's what we'll be uh, we'll be diving into. And I'll be, for those of you guys listening, I will be doing a video breakdown as well just uh, through my, my Pac-12 show pocket presence, so so check it out there. But, uh, yeah, I was I loved the first touchdown by Mario Williams because, yes, it was a great throw by Caleb Williams, but Mario Williams is, uh, is wide open, and it's a byproduct of the scheme and why Lincoln Riley is great. So, USC starts in a two-by-two formation, and then they motion the running back out to Mario Williams and Jordan Addison's side to make it a three-receiver um, a three-receiver side to that right side. So your full empty formation. And the, the, new, the nuance there is Washington State's corner, Shaw Smith-Wade, 
he then bumps out, and now you have a corner on the running back, and, now, and, and instead you have linebackers or the nickel over the top of both Mario Williams and Jordan Addison. So just from the start, the, the, the simple motion from a two-by-two two formation to motion the running back out to empty takes your best cover guy for Washington State, Shaw Smith-Wade, off of Jordan Addison and puts him on a running back. That's the first win, the most subtle win, but the first win just from a matchup uh, perspective. The second win is you look at Mario Williams, oh, how is he so wide open? They switch release Mario Williams and Jordan Addison, which means, hey, it's, I mean, it's exactly like it sounds. It's Instead of Mario Williams just going straight, he kind of takes the path that Jordan Addison would have taken if Jordan Addison went straight. Why that's noteworthy is it plays with Smith Wade, Wazoo's corner, it plays with his rules. His rules are, hey, I'm going to try to play in between number one, being the running back, and number two, where Jordan Addison is. I'm going to play in between both those guys if Jordan Addison were to go vertical. But when they do that switch release, Jordan Addison's not going vertical from the perspective of the corner. He's going inside, right? He's switching switching responsibility to Mario Williams. And what happens is uh, Smith Wade forgets the fact that now Mario Williams is like number two receiver. Even if he lined up as the number three receiver, he's now the number two receiver, and he still can go vertical. And that Smith Wade should still stay in between both the new the Mario Williams's vertical route and the hitch route on the outside by the running back. So just by simply releasing differently, uh, Addison and Mario Williams you play with the rules that that corner is trying to trying to trying to align with. And uh, as a result, you saw the corner Smith Wade latch onto the uh, the running back on the hitch. I forget if it was Jones or Travis Guy at the time. And uh, Mario Williams is is wide open. You also put the safety in a bind as well because he's having to navigate what's Jordan Addison doing. Do I need to stay over the top of him? Do I got to stay wide over Mario Williams? You put him in a bind as well. And so it's a product of having great skill players, don't get me wrong, but just formations and leveraging or knowing the rules for Washington State, putting those guys in a bind, that's how you find guys wide open. I've been on this podcast many years, Ryan, where we have said, why can't we find guys wide open? Why are we turning to and having got open, why can't we do that at USC? We have all the talent. Well, now we're coupling the talent with the scheme. A beautiful blend. And uh, for all of you guys that may have been gibberish too, I got a video breakdown. Check it out. It'll make a lot more sense. <laughs> no, I think it made perfect sense. That's awesome. I watched that play in real time, and I said, how in the world is he sitting there waiting for that ball wide open like that? And that explains it. Really good stuff. Red call by Lincoln Riley. We've seen more of those wide open receptions this year than I saw the last four years combined, I think. So this week too, I, I mentioned the, the whole Shaw Smith Wade Wazoo's corner matching up on the running back. This week Utah has Clark Phillips, who I know now Makai Blackman's probably in that top corner conversation for us. You got Christian Gonzalez at Oregon, but Clark Phillips for Utah, he is a stud. He will play on Sundays, and how Utah uses him, right? Does he travel with Jordan Addison? Does he switch off Addison or covering Mario Williams? That, to me, is a key matchup. Pay attention to where Utah number one lines up. That's a painful one for USC fans because had he come along at a different time, like right now, Clark Phillips would probably surely be a USC Trojan. If fans don't recall his recruitment, for whatever reason, USC just kind of jumped in late on him. He was a top top national prospect at, at La Habra uh, down here in this area, 
and they just were not very aggressive. And then they came in and made a big push and said, oh, we'll, we'll let you play offense and defense. But they just never never really stuck with the kind of pursuit you've got to have for a guy like that. And I, I recall talking to his dad during that process, and I think he said, you know, if, if they want to be a contender, they got to try a lot harder. He goes to Utah and, and gets out of the area like so many top prospects did. We're going to really appreciate the difference, I think, in a couple of years, as we get a couple of years into this process and you see how many of the top local guys like Clark Phillips now stay put and come to USC to play for Lincoln Riley and his staff versus the, uh, all those guys who have escaped the last few years. I think that's where things really start to take off for this program and you're a, an annual top contender. But yeah, that Clark Phillips matchup is, is going to be interesting. We talked to Jordan Addison on Tuesday about it and, in his style, he was very straight and to the point, but he goes, these are the kind of matchups that I, I get up for. This is what I, I want. So it'll be a fun one to watch. The passing game on Saturday, though, overall not uh, not overly impressive for four quarters. And it was a mix of, you know, Riley said that Caleb Williams missed a couple passes he could have hit, but more than that, it was the drops. Just drops all over the place or plays not made that maybe weren't technically drops. But Mario Williams has the two touchdowns, but also drops the two crossing passes where he could have caught and, and run for a while and just kind of uncharacteristic, I think, for him. We continue to see Taj Washington be put in situations that he's just not adept at, which is catching the ball in any kind of contested situation or really catching the ball on the move downfield. He needs to catch short passes and stationary passes as much as possible. But uh, he missed an opportunity. Malcolm Epps had one that was a little high that he couldn't get. Just a kind of a clunky performance overall for the passing game. Do you – how much of that do you put on Caleb Williams? He was 15 of 29 for 188 and two touchdowns. Or is it is it really the drops? And compounding that question, I'll just throw, throw a lot at you at once. How, how frustrating is that as a quarterback when you know you've made a, a, several great passes that are dropped – how hard is it to kind of shake that off and, and not let that either affect your trust in that receiver or just your your overall mojo? Yeah, it's funny that, like, in any game, I don't care if it's about USC or some NFL team, like, the idea that, A, a quarterback is to the point where you don't trust your receiver so much that you're, like, not throwing to him, I never had that at all in my career, even if a receiver had drops. Like, as a quarterback, you don't have that luxury. Like, your read dictates where you throw the ball, so I don't care if you don't trust that dude, like, you got to throw there. And sure, there's there's scenarios where there's it's man-to-man coverage and you can pick, hey, 1A or 1B. Sure, that's where it does matter. But by and large, especially in this offense, you're scheming, you're scheming guys up to – you know, attack a specific void and Saturday's game was oftentimes number four, but even if Mario Williams drops one, like, you're coming right back to him because you know how special he is, but the, the, the drops themselves are extremely frustrating for that very reason, in that you're putting so many resources into scheming up that exact window, that exact play, right? You're setting up that play beforehand. You have a play call to follow it, follow it off, off the back end, and they're just momentum killers, too. Like, it's one thing to you know, get flushed out and have to throw the ball away. But when you have an absolute gas shot down the middle of the field and shoot Mario Williams is electric after the catch, like if he catches that and would have scored a touchdown, like those are huge momentum killers just for the vibe of the offense. It's almost similar to dang taking a sack in some regard, maybe not that extreme, but 
at least that, in, in that mold. So to me, the drop stuck out the most, more so than anything really Caleb Williams related. It looked like some of those throws, right? He could have front shoulder padded him rather than back shoulder padded him, but. That just felt like a little bit of a fluke. I think it also is worth noting, though, that I think that Wazoo defense is just a straight-up good defense. Like that, is a, that is a really good college football defense. And so putting up 30, it's not 40, right? It's not above that. It's mesmer, like out of this world. But I think I, I said it last week in the podcast. I thought that was a really good defensive line for Washington State, one of the better ones that I think uh, USC will face this year. I like Wazoo's backers. I thought their corners were were solid, um, and teams, when they face USC, right, I mean, most defenses say, hey, we got to stop the run. I think most defenses, when they play USC, say, hey, we got to stop the pass first, or at least we have to have 1A be our impact Caleb Williams, and then and then 1B be stop the run, and that's probably the inverse for it is compared to what it is for, for, for most teams. So, the byproduct is when Caleb Williams maybe doesn't have a great night in the passing game, that you do have Travis Travis Dye go off for what I believe was the career high, at least in a USC uniform of 150 yards. So you got to keep it all under perspective, so to speak. But uh, I think the drops are rare, and I don't envision that being a huge issue for Mario Williams moving forward. Yeah, and, and Lincoln Riley really downplayed played it when he was asked about the passing struggles. He goes, oh, we only threw it 30 times, and – Ten of those were either drops or, or missed reads, so that doesn't leave you with much else. And then we were run, running the clock out at the end, so it, it is what it is. Once again, as, as he was after Oregon State, he is not very concerned about the passing game, and certainly I'm sure we'll see many, many more uh, big games from Caleb Williams the rest of the way, so we will not make a big deal of it this week. On the receivers, though, we thought we might see more involvement from a guy like Kyron Hudson after his strong play the week before against Arizona State. He gets no targets. I don't even know what the snap count was. I haven't looked yet. But he just wasn't a factor. Um, C.J. Williams got in there for a target. But the rotation really shrunk down again. And the only guys with catches were Mario Williams, Jordan Addison, Brendan Rice, the running backs, and Lake McCree. So I think that um, maybe the hopes that we were seeing a breakout from a guy like Kyron Hudson are probably not going to be realized this year, just given the way they kind of truncate that rotation. Yeah, I think it's going to be one of those things where in these close games, he's going to double down on his uh, his starting core unit, right? We're seeing that at the running back position as well. Like Travis Dye is that dude. I think uh, a lot of us – Myself included. I expected it to be kind of 1A, 1B uh, throughout the season. And it's Travis Dye. He's the dude at running back. You're finding the dudes at receiver. The tight end usage is is very um, intentional, so to speak. You're not, like, rotating in multiple dudes. So we're seeing that uh, seeing that uh, as we get into to, uh, the crucial part of the season. Yeah, and certainly nothing to criticize there. It's, it's obviously smart. You know, get your best players the ball as much as possible. With You mentioned Travis Dye and, and the running back rotation. I wanted to get to that. There's been a lot of questions uh, from fans I've seen on Twitter, on the board, about what happened to Austin Jones. He had no carries in this game. I think he played six snaps. I'll double-check that. It's a very simple answer. If, if you go back and watch the Arizona State game, he had a very, very tough night blocking. He had several, several whiffs, 
missed assignments, and we've heard we've heard all season. If you don't block, you don't play, and I think that that was the uh, penalty for for those struggles. And so I wasn't surprised to see him kind of have a smaller role, but to be kind of out of the picture entirely was maybe more than I expected. Travis died, 28 carries and 149 yards. It is a season high. He had a bigger game his freshman year at Oregon, I think it was, as I look through the records, but definitely one of the best games of his career. And I don't think that he really wore down all that much. I think, if anything, he wore, he wore down the defense. Uh, averaged 5.3 yards a carry for the game and just remains – maybe the most impressive player on this entire team to me. He's just so fun to watch. Yeah, we should see too because, you know, it's not like when Austin Jones is in the game, he's adding a different element than Travis Dye can add. But really Brown does. And if there's only so many, you know, backup running back carries to be had as Relief gets more and more comfortable and obviously is an extremely explosive player and I'm sure the staff wants to increase his role you know, uh, it's not only Travis Dye that Jones has to, you know, monitor, but it's it's really Brown as well. So, be interesting to see how that works. I also think, especially with college kids, a lot of this is, you know, I feel like in years past, maybe guys got reps to try to, like, keep their confidence right and try to, like, keep them in the fold. And that does not necessarily seem like a priority on this staff. But should he be called upon, Austin Jones is a guy, I mean, you know, running back's position has uh, – you can get some 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 nicks and whatnot. Hopefully, his confidence is not impacted by that. But that's uh, that's football. And that's that, that's real life. Well, I think you said it earlier. I think it's in the big games, the tight games. They're not going to take any chances. They're gonna they're gonna stick with their with their guys uh, as much as possible. When when you have a conducive matchup, like when they play Colorado, I fully expect to see a lot of Austin Jones, a lot of Kyron Hudson. Um, and the guys who aren't getting opportunities, I, I think they will try and get them those looks in those games like they did with Arizona State. But in games like Utah this week, I'm going to guess that we see a pretty similar allotment of, of targets and, and, and carries as we did this past week. Um, not much more to cover on the offense except an interesting note that when Bobby Haskins had to leave the game briefly on Saturday with a apparent shoulder injury, he did come back. It was Mason Murphy who filled in at left tackle and not Cortland Ford. And Lincoln Riley was asked about that on Tuesday after practice and basically said, he goes, I, we thought it was the best decision. Uh, guys are working hard in practice. We have tough decisions to make. And it was, it was the right call at that time. So, you know, I would certainly take that to mean that it's a fluid situation, but Mason Murphy might be your second team left tackle right now all of a sudden. That is interesting, too, and it uh, it gets back to a conversation that we've had many times in this podcast of in this transfer portal era, how do you manage your roster to, you know, keep guys happy and potentially minimize guys leaving? I don't know the nuances of necessarily what, what court and forward situation is, but I think there's a lot of head coaches that in that scenario, if it was just for one play, you go with the default decision because you don't want to rock the boat per se, right? You don't want to open up the opportunity to piss off a player because in the new day and age, who knows? They may leave. I'm not saying that's Colton Ford per se, but I think it is telling that Lincoln Riley, you know, this is how he's going to run his program. I don't care. And, and you're seeing a little bit with Corey Foreman too. I think, you know, Corey has all the hype in the world, 
but it's what you do in practice. And that, you know, that is more of an NFL model in terms of what you do in practice, that dictates the game. And that's going to set a level of, of a certain standard in the locker room that guys are going to respect. And so that, to me, it's not insignificant because I, I think it shows how Lincoln is handling his program at large, not just the, uh, just the left tackle spot. Yeah, I made the hypothesis last week that I thought they might keep the rotation going there just to keep Cortland Ford involved in the mix because when you lose Bobby Haskins next year and, and Voorhees and, and Nealon, that it may be important that you keep Ford around and have some veteran guys to put in the mix. But maybe I was wrong uh, because I, I think now, basically everything you just said and, and what we saw – it's, it sure seems like, going back to the whole part about Lincoln Riley's just palpable confidence, I don't think he worries about being able to fill voids. I think he knows that they will be a very desirable destination for transfer for portal guys, even more so than they were last year. Uh, now that they've come in and proven what they can do and gotten this thing up and running again, I think that he knows that if someone leaves, we can replace them. And that's probably the way he's approaching it. All right, well, let's move it forward to, I think, a game that everyone circled on the schedule at the start of the season said this was one of one of the toss-up games, one of the toughest games, one of the games that could certainly um, dictate the ceiling for USC season. The number seven Trojans, they dropped the spot in the rankings despite winning again, but uh, that'll all sort itself out in time. Go on the road to number 20 Utah this week. Utah is 4-2, and 2-1 two, two and one in the conference and coming off a loss to UCLA, 42-32 last week. We will get to UCLA and kind of the Pac-12 power structure in a second. But, Max, just start us off with Utah and, and what you think about their team in this matchup. Yeah, I was shocked that uh, UCLA won just in general, but in the way that they won in terms of by no means did they take a backseat to Utah when it comes to – when it came to the, the physicality aspect. Excuse me. Um yeah, this Utah team, I think high level, it's it's a lot of the same in terms of what you're used to seeing from the youths. Obviously, coming off the Rose Bowl game last year, uh, they returned a lot of the same dudes. Uh, offensively, the big news lately for Utah is they lost Brant Keithy, who was uh, their kind of do-it-all tight end. They lined him up a bunch at receiver, and he was their big third-down guy. He's an NFL guy, and they lost him to injury. So their past couple of weeks have been – trying to fill the offensive void of, uh, of what he brings to the table. Same quarterback in Cam Rising, Southern California kid, played with their quarterback last year, and the running back, Tavion Thomas and Mike, uh, Micah Bernard, uh, kind of a one-two punch there. To me, offensively, they've, they've put more on Cam Rising's shoulders uh, this year. Um, I think last year it was a lot of just hand the ball off, play action, and then should they need you on third down, then he would be called upon. This year, it's it's a lot more of him running the show, but they're also they're kind of the other side of that is a lot of folks thought that hey maybe he's like a Heisman dark horse uh, before the season started, and I don't think his game has elevated. I don't think his game has notched up to that degree in terms of oh wow he's so much better. No, I think he's playing very comparable to how he played last year, which is a good level, but it's not an elite level where he can win you a game on his own. So kind of a, a, a two-part answer there. Uh, defensively for the Utes, I don't think they're as 
dominant up front as I thought they were going to be. Um, they have some unique edge rushers and some prospects there from an NFL basis, but years past, they've, we've seen Utah be just absolutely stout up front. That's not necessarily the case this year. They're good up front. Don't get me wrong. You're not pushing those guys around, but it's not like they have a, a surefire kind of NFL first, second round pick in the middle that they can, they can hang their hat on. Van Fillinger is an exciting edge rusher they have, number seven. Cole Bishop's an exciting safety that they really like. Who's going to get involved? And then we also we obviously talked about about uh, Clark Phillips as well. As well. So to me, this is a four and two youth team. I think they're still a really good college football team. They're favored for a reason. Game Rice Eccles is tough, but by no means is it a you know a, a top five invincible, uh, a top five nationally ranked team that's invincible that's come in here undefeated that uh, has. Uh, has high, has high hopes. I think mentally, though, for the youths, they know that their season really rides upon this game, right? They're 4-2. and two. If they lose again, they're out of Pac-12 championship contention. So don't lose track of the fact that the youths have to think that, uh, you know, it's, it's do or die right now. Yeah, their other loss came in the opener at Florida, 29-26. Uh, the Swamp is a tough place to play, especially when you're not used to the humidity in Gainesville which I spent two years there and never got used to the humidity in Gainesville. So I can, I can kind of um, understand that being an off game for them. But they really don't have that signature win either, I don't think. So, you know, I, I fully expected them to beat UCLA, and they didn't. So now I don't know where I even slot them in the Pac-12 power rankings. Where would you put them in right now, Max? This is funny. I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment. I I still have them at two, even though they lost to UCLA. Wow. I, I, that game just fell off to me. They felt slow and call me a USC homer or whatnot. <laughs> I, I, I respect what UCLA's done, but I just know what Utah still has in the tank. I still think they're finding their way post-Brant Keezy. I'd expect those receivers to step up. I think Utah has a big second half. I think UCLA is on a great stretch right now. I think they're they're a good they're a really good college football team. But I still have Utah at two. But to me, it's really you know, you excuse me, USC one, and then Utah, Oregon, and UCLA at three with UW just on the outside. I feel similar about Utah as I do UW in that. I think they've had a, a tough a tough couple of weeks. Utah's uh, or, uh, Washington's secondary, obviously a big question there. But I believe in UW's offense. So long term, we got a lot of season left. I think that that batch of Oregon, Utah, UCLA, and UW will be fun to uh, fun to see throughout the uh, the remaining season. Man, you, you're really playing to the audience today, sticking it to the Sooners and sticking it to the Bruins. Literally, <laughs> literally, literally. Surprised to hear that. I haven't, I haven't really watched Utah, so I'm gonna defer to your analysis. But I've been very impressed with Oregon. Too, like if you're trying to do common opponents too, yeah, Utah beat up on Oregon State. Beat like that that second half, they they ran away with that. Obviously, we had Oregon State on the road, um, but that was a tight game, way down to the wire. So. The, the whole, like, ASU beating UW, too, we're going to see more of that. Just get ready. We're going to see uh, a little bit of cannibalizing ourselves. But there's just a lot of good teams in the Pac-12 this year. 
this is the big game on the Pac-12 schedule this week. Next week is one of the biggest games of the season. As you, unbeaten UCLA goes up to Oregon, 5-1 and one Oregon. Both teams are on bye this week in advance of that game. And I think after this week, after next week, we'll have some real clarity on those power rankings and where everyone fits in. I've been very impressed with the Ducks since they got just embarrassed in the season opener by Georgia, 49-3. to They've come back and put together five really impressive wins in a row, only really got challenged by Washington State and managed to rally back from a 12-point deficit in the final four minutes of that game, so that showed something. Uh, but otherwise, they've been pretty dominant offensively. They have the best rushing attack in the conference and one of the best in the country. Uh, Bo Nix has been a lot better than I think anyone would have expected, uh, getting out of Auburn and, and kind of flourishing in Kenny Dillingham's offense at Oregon. So I would probably put Oregon at number two in my power rankings right now because I'm also clearly not totally buying in on, on the Bruins just yet despite their 6-0 start. But, uh, yeah, a lot to come in the coming weeks. I, I, it'll be really interesting. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, it's funny, too, because in terms of looking at the different quarterbacks, right, we just played Cam Ward. We're about to play Cam Rising. You mentioned Bo Nix. I view Bo Nix and Cam Rising as as fairly comparable in, t- in terms of their styles, right? You're going to have – they're going to have, call it, three to five impact runs a game, whether those impact runs are a little – five-yard pick up the first down, or if they're going to run 40, 45 yards down the field, that's something defensively you got to be ready for. And then I asked Lincoln Riley on Monday night, you have Cam Ward and Cam Rising, both mobile quarterbacks, both guys that, you know, want to throw the rock, but their mobilities are way different. Cam Rising is going to have much more called runs, right? Like third and five, quarterback zone read, and he's going to – I mean, it, it looks like sneaky quickness, but now he's done it so much, you just have to expect it. Versus Cam Ward was much more um, like Johnny Manziel a little bit, where he's moving around back in the pocket, but he's only trying to throw the rock, and it's a run at, at the last last minute type of thing. So matchup-wise for FC, it'll be interesting to, interesting to see how Grinch game plans for each of those quarterbacks that are all playing well, but none of them are elite elite all playing well and you got to scheme differently for for each of those offenses yeah I I think that USC fans probably still worry about every mobile quarterback and just until until we see that that's no longer a problem as it's been for for years and years that is the part of this matchup that that really I think is the x factor to me and I you know I'll just say I think that USC is very fortunate not to have Oregon on the regular season schedule because I think that would be the toughest matchup possible for them in the conference, given how well the Ducks run the ball, how good their offensive line is, and that they do have a mobile mobile quarterback on top of their just traditional rushing attack. I think that would be the worst matchup for USC's defense possible, but they don't play them in the regular season. We'll see if that becomes a potential Pac-12 championship matchup. But going back to uh, USC-Utah, if you had to boil it down, what to you is the is the – premium matchup that's going to decide this game premium matchup is utah's defensive line versus usc's offensive line i think the blueprint of why oregon state was successful and it didn't necessarily show up in this stat sheet but um or sorry oregon state was successful uh against against usc and it didn't necessarily show up in the stat sheet but it impacted caleb williams in terms of some of the uh errant throws he had and that was the ability for them to get pressure with four. And maybe not even pressure, 
but just have an impact with four rushers because then you get the ability to have seven guys in coverage, which I think you need all seven to slow down this passing attack. In Utah, their defensive coordinator, Morgan Scouty, that they do a lot of those fire zone blitzes where they're going to blitz from one side and then drop linebackers out of the other side. So visually for us viewers, it looks like a blitz, but technically it's not because you're only bringing four guys. Four guys is not a blitz. Not when you have five offense linemen, but they can have different packages and whatnot. So that defensive line for Utah, I mentioned some of the guys that they have um, down there. Van Fillinger, uh, a big-time edge rusher. Uh, they also have Kareen Reed, who's done some good things. And they have fooled other quarterbacks. You go back and look at the San Diego State game. I've broken down a, a pick they had in that game. It's confusing the quarterback. It's showing different looks. That matchup's big time, especially when you talk about, hey, if USC's the only thing they're still trying to figure out really on offense is that left tackle spot. I'm sure Utah's defense is dialing up pressures to get after that left tackle spot. We've seen our offensive line give up pressure at certain points, and if you allow Utah to sit in man coverage and allow Utah to blitz and do different pressure packages, that's how you slow down both Caleb Williams, and that's how you slow down this run game as well, not letting Travis Dye get going. So that matchup to me is uh, is fun of mine, and uh, especially coming off a week where Utah – you know, they uh, they got beat up front by UCLA. UCLA was able to do whatever they wanted to offensively. Zach Charbonnet had an absolute game, UCLA's running back. I would expect Utah to have an edge. That matchup's what I'm focusing on this Saturday. Good stuff. One last element of this game, of course, it being a road game and, and what you would think would be a, a tough environment. They've really only had one of those so far with Oregon State. I don't think Stanford really was that kind of atmosphere. And certainly the Oregon State game was, was the most off this team has been. And they were having trouble getting plays off in time. They were clearly affected by the, by the noise and the, and the atmosphere. And so that has to be a, a, a topic of discussion this week, a, um, a factor in this matchup. What do you recall from any trips to Rice-Eccles Stadium? Love the question. Rice-Eccles is – to me, the most underrated college football venue that I've been a part of, and I would say all of college football, but I haven't spent a lot of time in the SEC and whatnot, but I have spent time in the ACC and obviously the Pac-12 as well, and Rice-Eccles is special, uh, and we did not get it, at least when I was there, we did not get it before the, the remodel, so now it's even uh, even more more high-end and whatnot, but coming out of that tunnel is a blast. You, you shoot out from the... Uh, kind of like right into the stadium. There's no walk-up. There's no, like, side intro. Like, you're right there. Um, in Utah, we got them a bunch on Friday nights, which was even more of an electric atmosphere. But they show up. I think this week uh, the Mus, which is what they call their fan base, is going to be an all-black. So they're going to be fired up. I loved playing there. My first meaningful snap ever was when Cody uh, went down for just a couple plays, got in there uh, in the game, and – I mean, that was, that was the intro to college football. It's an unreal atmosphere, and it cannot be stressed enough of the impact of, of, of road games in college football. I mean, you look at what Utah has done at home versus on the road, that tells you all you need to know about the impact of, of, of road games, right? They go, to, they go to the Rose Bowl. They go to the Swamp. Not their best performances at home. They've been very good. Rice Eccles is special. It'll be, uh, it'll be a fun one. Most of the players on this USC roster have never played a game there with a crowd. USC went there during the 2020 pandemic season where there were zero fans in the stands. And, in fact, I think 
I was the only traveling media member who, who went to that game. And I, rem- I remember because the broadcast went out for like an eight-minute stretch, and I was like having the relay play-by-play to our subscribers as what was happening. And uh, Thule had his first career sack uh, during that broadcast outage. And so, um, but yeah, that was just obviously a different environment with no fans in there. And we talked to Raylan Goforth on Tuesday, and and he was asking Eric Gentry about it because Gentry played them last year with Arizona State, and Gentry was re- really selling it. You know, it's it's a loud place. It's, it's a you're gonna feel it, and and um, but most of these players have not been there, so it, it's an element to consider, and we will see what happens. As we do always, we close it down with a prediction. Max, what is your prediction for USC and Utah? I've gone back and forth on this one the past few days. And to me, hence I said, I still view Utah as the second best team in the conference, which is certainly a hot take for most. But if I do not have Utah winning this game, then I'm basically saying that USC is going to go undefeated this season. And I don't know if USC this level is undefeated. Um, So I am going Utah 34, USC 27 the first loss of the season for the USC Trojans. It's a respectable loss, but Ryan, it's the first one of the season. And and what do you think swings it that way? I think the, what I said before, I think Utah's defensive line finds the, a, a good enough recipe to slow up the passing attack, get Caleb just slightly off of his rhythm, and I also think, uh, you know, Utah does some things in the run game as well that will be interesting and a good test for our edge guys that they do enough offensively to uh, get over the hump. But it's that matchup. It's that our offensive line versus their defensive line and the different defensive packages. I respect it. I respect the prediction and uh, where you're coming from. I am going to go USC 34-31. to 31. I think it's a very close game. I still just – I'm a believer that this is the best team in the conference, which they could still be and also lose one. But uh, I'm going to go with the win for the Trojans, and we'll see how it plays out Saturday. Are we going to get you to bet against SC at, at any point this season? Is there a game on the schedule that uh, makes you blink twice? It, it would be Oregon in a Pac-12 championship setting. I think that I would have to really think long and hard about that. But on the schedule with Notre Dame being down and the rest of the games after this one, not all that uh, – threatening I don't think so I think this would be the one but I, I just watched Utah more than I have and I'm, I'm looking at the results and that they couldn't get past UCLA granted on the road that they the Oregon State win is nice I get it but other than that I just I haven't seen enough to think that they are as good as they've been in recent years which you kind of hinted that too so I'm going to go with the Trojans this one but hey listen I'm I'm open-minded every week, so if uh, if one of these teams gets hot the rest of the way and USC stumbles, I will certainly consider the matchup in the moment, but <laughs> uh, pro- probably picking the Trojans most most of the way. I'm still just sitting here thinking, and I was not alone on this, but we I think the consensus was that 9 or 10 win mark yeah. um, comes into the season, and I would say the consensus now is well over that, which, hey, all of, all of you listeners, we can't lose sight of just how remarkable and how quick this turnaround has been. But uh, that's the standard at SC. Gotta love it. I'll keep saying it every week because, yeah, it's just amazing. Fun podcast, as always, Max. We appreciate the analysis and the insight. And, of course, we will do it again next week. It was fun. Thanks, Ryan. 
All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, numbers have been great all season. Really, really appreciate the continued support and interest in the podcast because we really enjoy doing it. And it's uh, just good to know that people are listening. People like it. People want it. And we will obviously keep doing it every week of the season, mostly with Max. We'll have some other guests that were relevant. With that, back on the podcast next week, the bye week, breaking down this game. And we'll do some fun midseason MVPs and uh, other categories. I will come up with a good list of stuff for me and Max to debate and highlight. Check us out at trojansports.com. We'll have plenty of stuff leading up to the game. If you haven't seen it, read our feature on Tuli Tui Pelotu that went up earlier this week. Read our column on the defense being ahead of schedule, exceeding expectations. Not according to Lincoln Riley or Alex Grinch, but according to me. But it's my column, so my opinion. But uh, ch- check those out. Uh, we have our preview content for the game. We have maybe another surprise coming Friday. We will see. Working on it right now. Uh, but check us out at trojansports.com and get in that game day thread on Saturday. It's fun. We're having good discussions and debates and some raw reaction when things don't go well, even though there hasn't been a ton of that this season. Uh, can still can still get a little restless in there if they uh, start slow offensively. But it's always a good discussion, and I'm dropping my thoughts and reactions and opinions in there. Hope to, Hope to see you in there on Saturday. Hope to see you back on the podcast next week. Thank you.